Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, I will begin with the first verse, although the text is actually verses 4 through 14, but uh, it's very important that you, it's very important that you have the first uh, section there, because that uh, Helps explain the entire rest of the chapter, actually, and why Jesus answers the way he does. So, this is the Word of God. It contains all that you and I need for life and godliness. It is uh, without error in the original language uh, languages in which it was given, and we have the promise in faithful translations of the original, such as that which I'm reading from, that it remains to us the authoritative Word of God. So, listen carefully. Matthew 24, 1. And Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he answered and said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here shall be left upon another which will not be torn down. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end, and of, the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations on account of my name. And at that time, many will fall away and will deliver up one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. And because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to all the nations, and then the end shall come. Amen. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for the promises uh, found in your word regarding preaching, uh, that when uh, 
lawfully ordained minister of the gospel, um, is r- rightly expounding your word, uh, your written word in the pulpit, that you, Lord Jesus, become, as it were, our preacher, our prophet, speaking to us afresh. Lord, would you please guard my lips? Would you please forbid that I should say anything that is contrary to what you mean in your scriptures? And would you please speak to us and instruct us and help us? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Kids, have you ever had uh, a situation, I'm sure you have, and I'm going to give you an example of it here in just a moment, but a situation where uh, your parents have said to you, this has to happen before this can happen. I'll give you an example. So, have you ever had your mom or dad say, you have to pick up your room before you can have dessert, or before you can go outside and play? Or you have to finish your homework before you can um, listen to uh, a story on the uh, on the radio or something like that. Have you ever had that happen? This has to happen before this can happen. We've all had that, right? It's kind of a condition. Well, that's a fancy word, but it's uh, something that has to happen first that will allow the next thing that is under discussion to happen. Well, that's part of what's going on in this chapter, actually, kids. And it's going to be the second point. It's going to be the shorter of my two points. Uh, But something is told to us by Jesus that has to happen before something else, very monumental, actually, very uh, important, is going to happen. And listen for that uh, as I work my way through this passage, and as you listen and do so as well. As I mentioned uh, a moment ago, but just before I read this scripture passage, it's really important to, to grasp what's happening in the first three verses of this passage in order to understand the passage. Because the passage, which really uh, starts in verse, uh, uh, Jesus' answer, I should say, to the disciples' question, uh, starts in verse 4 and actually goes all the way to the end of chapter 25. Uh, it's called the Olivet Discourse because it was took place on the Mount of Olives. Um, and uh, understanding the discourse, uh, particularly chapter 24, is, is not going to happen unless you grasp uh, the first section and what's going on there and what isn't going on there. So I'm going to, by way of review, going to give you a few of the key takeaways from last Sunday's sermon when we looked at those first three verses here, just to get us started. What's understanding the disciples' question that they ask in verse 3 is key to understanding Jesus' response in the remainder of the Olivet Discourse. Now, when we compare, as I mentioned last week, Matthew's version of their question, of the disciples' question, with Mark and Luke's version of their question, and they differ. Mark and Luke's version are similar, but they differ somewhat in the way it's worded from what Matthew says. When we make that comparison of the various versions, it is clear that the disciples wanted to know basically about one thing, although two aspects of that one thing. 
They wanted to know when the destruction of the temple, and uh, it was going to involve more than just the temple, as we know, uh, the entire city of Jerusalem, but they were thinking particularly about the temple, because Jesus had just talked about not one stone is going to be left upon another. They were staring at the temple complex, and Jesus is saying that's going to be flattered in a pancake. There's nothing going to be left. And so they're asking, when is that going to happen, Jesus? And what will be the sign that that will happen? That that destruction of, of the temple is imminent? So that's what they're asking, okay? And that's clear when you compare the various uh, versions of their question. Well, their assumption that they are making as they ask this question is important to note. They are uh, assuming... Well, let me back up. We, we, they're assuming, and we get this from Matthew's uh, question, the way it's worded in the text we're looking at today, they're making a couple of assumptions, the disciples are. One is right, one is wrong. The first assumption they are making is that the temple's destruction that Jesus has just prophesied in the preceding verse, that the temple's destruction is going to occur at the end of human history. They're assuming that. We know that. Another assumption that they are making is that the end of human history will be brought about by the return of Jesus, the bodily return of Jesus. And that will bring the end, bring in the end of the age, the end of the age, the day of judgment, okay? So those are the two assumptions that the apostles are, are the disciples, who would become apostles shortly, are making. And their assumption that the end of human history would be brought about by Jesus bodily return in glory as judge, that assumption was correct. That is going to happen. The end of the age, the end of the world as we know it, is going to uh, be brought about by Jesus' return in judgment as the great divine judge, judging the goats and the sheep. So they were correct about that. But because the temple's destruction, which was on their mind, would obviously occur as a result of divine judgment. Why else would the temple, God's temple, be destroyed? Uh, of the temple of God's people and God be destroyed unless God was angry. So they realized, well, the temple's going to be destroyed because God is angry. And he, uh, uh, he destroys it through uh, whatever means of his choosing. It turns out it was the Roman armies. But so they, because the temple's going to be destroyed as a result of divine judgment... And because the meeting out of divine judgment was going to be a central aspect of Jesus' second coming, which they knew from his teaching up to this point, the disciples wrongly concluded from those facts that the temple's destruction would occur whenever Jesus came back bodily. That they got wrong. Okay? The reason it's important to understand that these are the assumptions, these one right, one wrong that the disciples are making here as they ask their question, is because it explains why they asked the question the way they did in verse 3, and it explains why Jesus answers their question the way he did in the Olivet Discourse. Jesus' answer to their question in that answer, Jesus actually answers two questions. He does, first, he speaks about the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple, and speaks about the sign that it would, meet, that it would, would immediately precede the destruction of the temple, 
um, and and Jerusalem's in it. And he does that in verses 15 through 33, which we will look at, Lord willing, next time uh, I'm in the pulpit. We'll see about that. But at any rate, hopefully that will happen. Um, so he speaks... Jesus speaks about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and the sign that will accompany that. But he also speaks about his bodily return to earth at the end of the age and the signs that will immediately precede that day of judgment. And he does this in the passage we are looking at today. He speaks at his return, I should say. Um, yeah, uh, uh, at the end of the ages in the passages that we're looking at today. Now, our Lord repeatedly refers to the end uh, in the first uh, part of his response to the disciples' question. In the section that we're looking at today, you heard the word the end show up three or four times, I think. Two or three times at least. Uh, well, one, once in the disciples' question, uh, once in verse... Uh, uh, 13, another time in verse 14, and once in verse 6 as well. He kept, he kept talking about the end. You noticed that, right? Um, well, what is he referring to? What is Jesus referring to when he speaks of the end? Well, he is referring to the very same end to which Paul referred in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 24. I'll start reading in verse 22, um, and then you'll hear it at the uh, end of my reading. So this is 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 22. He says, Paul does, and as for, uh, and as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. He's talking about the two covenants, the covenant of works in Adam and the uh, covenant with the second Adam, Christ, and grace coming from it to all the elect. There. So for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, after that, those who are Christ at his coming, then comes the end. When he delivers up the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. So that's the same end that Paul is talking, that Jesus is talking about, is the one that Paul just talked about there. Then come that then comes the end. It's also the same end that the disciples themselves were referring to in their question back in verse 3. They ask, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They use the fuller uh, description of it, uh, just not just the end, but the end of the age here in their question. And what they intended, what the disciples intended by their use of this expression, uh, the end of the age, was exactly what Jesus himself had taught them it meant earlier on in his ministry. I'll give you just briefly uh, two examples of this. If you turn back to Matthew uh, 13, do that if you have your Bibles, and you should have your Bibles with you. Please bring them. In his parable of the wheat and the tares, I'm not going to read the parable itself. That starts in verse 24 and goes through verse 30. Most of you are familiar with that parable. But I'm going to read a portion of Jesus' interpretation of that parable. Okay, That begins in verse 36. And listen for the phrase, the end of the age, uh, as I read it. It'll happen uh, twice in this parable 
and then we're going to look at one more parable a little bit further on in verse uh, chapter 13. So I'm going to read this. Starting in verse 36, reading through verse 43. Then he left the multitudes and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field, which he had just spoken earlier on. And he answered and said, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. So that's Jesus himself. And the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. And the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And notice, and the harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are angels. Therefore, just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so it shall be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom, in other words, at the end of the age, they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire in that place where there, uh, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So, he is clearly there in the verses of uh, that whole section. He's clearly, when he speaks of the end of the age, he's talking about the end of world history. When Jesus returns with his holy angels in glory to judge, to right all wrongs. If you go down a little bit further in Matthew 13 to the parable of the dragnet, starting in verse 47, you see a similar understanding uh, uh, of the end of the age, that phrase that the disciples use in their question. Verse 47, and again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it is filled, they drew, drew it up on the beach and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad fish they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels shall come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In both of those parables, that exact same phrase that is found in the disciples' question as it's um, uh, articulated in verse 3 of Matthew 24, the exact same Phrase is found, and the exact same meaning is there. By the way, um, Jesus also uses this phrase after his ascension, which hasn't happened yet at this point. But his, uh, after his ascension, when just before, or after his resurrection, rather, just before his ascension, when he says, you know, in that uh, well-known passage, uh, the, the uh, Great Commission. He says, "All authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations." all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Exact same phrase. I'm belaboring this point a little bit because it's important to understand what's going on and what isn't going on, and particularly in verses 4 through 14 that we're looking at right now. It is clear, I suggest... Uh, I don't, I don't suggest, it is clear, uh, that the end to which Jesus refers throughout his answer to the disciples' questions, particularly in the section that we're looking at today, 
is the end of human history as we know it. It's the day when Jesus will return bodily in glory with his holy angels to judge the world. It is the great day and the final day of judgment. It is the day on which Jesus will usher in the new heavens and the new earth. It's that day. No other days in view when he speaks of the end or the end of the age. When the disciples, uh, that was their uh, expanded version of it. So, since the disciples, in their question, brought up the subject of the sign of Jesus coming at the end of the age, they brought that up. They didn't realize that that wasn't going to happen at the same time that the destruction of the temple was going to happen. They assumed, again, that they were going to happen uh, concurrently. But since they brought up the subject of the sign of Jesus coming at the end of the age, um, Jesus' answer to them not only covers the issue of the temple and its destruction and and the destruction of the surrounding city, but he also addresses in this Olivet Discourse his second coming at the end of the age. So he's dealing with two questions. He's answering two questions, even though they didn't realize they were asking two questions. They were. He's dealing with both subjects, in other words. So our job is to discern when he's talking about when, or what, rather. The end of human history, it turns out, is the first topic that he touches on in his answer to the disciples' question in the text that we're looking at today. But here's the thing. It's, it's kind of unusual, I'll put it that way. He doesn't address this topic of the end of the age in the way that most people would probably expect him to address the topic. Most of us would probably expect him to begin discussing the end of the age, the end of human history, by identifying the sign or signs that would signal this all-important event's arrival. Right? That it's, it's upon us. It's imminent. And he, you'd expect him to say, well, this is what you look for. After all, it was the sign of Christ's coming at the end of the age that they had asked about in their question, along with the time of the temple's future destruction. However, it is, this is not the way Jesus handled uh, the, uh, the subject in this section. Rather, what he does is he begins addressing the topic of the end of human history, not by identifying the signs of its imminent arrival, but by informing the disciples and us of what things do not signal the end of the age that it's just uh, around the corner or that it has arrived. So he's saying, essentially, here are what are not signs of the end of human history in this section. That leads me, finally, to the two points. The one is uh, particularly short at the end. Um, this, uh, the first point is a little bit longer. But there are two points here. First, we're going to look in our remaining time at the tumultuous events, which are not signs of the arrival of the end of the age. And then, uh, at the end, the tail end, we're going to look at a task which will be accomplished before the arrival of the end of the age. So, tumultuous events that are not signs of its arrival, and a task which must be completed before its arrival. So first, tumultuous signs that are not signs of the arrival of the end of human history. 
Jesus begins by making it clear uh, in this section uh, that his coming, his second coming, his bodily return to the earth at the end of human history is not imminent. So he's speaking these words around 70, excuse me, around 30 A.D., A.D. 30, um, the last week of his life. And he makes it clear, this is not, it's not, what I'm talking about when I'm talking about my coming is not going to happen anytime soon. The end is not going to happen anytime soon. How do I know that? Well, back up to the disciples' assumption. The disciples were correct, as I mentioned a moment ago, in assuming that Christ would return to earth in glory, and that his second coming would signal the end of the age. They were correct about that assumption. But before Jesus was to return as judge of the world, we are told by him now in verses uh, verse 5, 4 and 5, that there are going to be many false Christs. Many false, Christ means Messiah. There are going to be many false Messiahs that are going to show up on the scene before I come back. Again, see to it that no one misleads you, verse 4, verse 5. For many will come, many will come in my name, saying, I'm the Christ, I'm the Messiah, and will mislead many. What is, what is underlying, in order for many Christs, or false, false Christs, false messiahs to show up, it implies, you see, that a significant period of time had to pass or elapse before Jesus was going to return as, as judge in his second coming. Just that very fact alone, that there are going to be many false Christs showing up and misleading many. That takes time, you see. And so right there, that was the beginning of, they should have gone, ah, oh, this is going to happen right away, Jesus' return. Also, that his return at the end of human history was not going to be immediate uh, from the point of view of the first century is also evident um, in verse what's said in verse 8. Hold on a moment here. Yeah, verse 8. Yes, okay, here we go. Let me now start reading in verse 7. For a nation will arise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Merely the beginning. By the way, the other text uh, that uh, I should have read verse 6 to you a moment ago, let me read that. Uh, after he says, uh, many false Christs will come misleading many, and he said in verse 6, and you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. We'll get to that in a minute. See that you are not frightened, for th- those things, which include the false Christ coming, many of them, must take place, but that is not yet the end. So that points to the fact that there is going to be a significant duration of time, as does what he says in verse 8. These are All these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. It's not the end. It's merely the beginning of birth pangs. And by the way, um, Jesus, in several of his parables, and we're not going to look at any of these because we do not have time, but I'm just going to at least list them. Jesus, in a number of his parables, indicates that there would be a relatively long period of time between his first coming to earth and his second coming to earth as judge. So I'll just list them off, and you can look them up if you want to. The parable of the wheat and the tares implies a long duration of time. 
uh, passage of time. The parable of the mustard seed implies a long duration of time between the first and second coming. The parable of the leaven, the parable of the ten virgins, the parable of the talents, and the parable of the fruitful, faithful rather, steward. All of them, if you read them, you realize, wait a minute, he's not going to come right away. He's not coming back right away. So that's important to understand uh, and to, as you read those passages that say, you know, the end is at hand or whatever, or uh, the Lord is near, uh, as I believe it says, in, uh, James says. you got to take into account these other passages that point to a significant duration of time before the return of Christ in glory. Okay, so back to the point. So there are going to be false Christs um, that are going to appear uh, pretending to be either Jesus or a type of, uh, like Jesus. And they're going to mislead many. That's going to be their goal, is to mislead. And of course, Satan is behind them, so he is using them to mislead, to draw as many away as possible. But Jesus says in verse five, this, or verse 6, this is not going to be the end. And these are not signs of the end, the, the appearance of false Christ. Another thing that he says are not going to be signs of the appearance of the end uh, and its arrival or his coming is ongoing political upheaval. Verse, uh, he said, you, verse 6, you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. He says in verse 7, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. So there's going to be political upheaval that you... Uh, the disciples were going to see, and others as well. And he says, you know, this is going to happen. You're going to see uh, um, um, world events that are going to trouble you. You're going to see wars. You're going to, there's going to be bloodshed. There's going to be chaos. There are going to be nations that are going to conquer other nations. You're going to see that. But that's not the end. So, when the disciples began to see the unraveling of the peace... In the first centuries, when it began to happen, the peace that Rome had secured for the ancient world, it actually was famously referred to as the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. When, when uh, the disciples and uh, others following them in the first century began to see, wait, wait, the world's coming apart as we know it, starting to come apart, they were not to conclude. Jesus is, is about to show up again. That was not the conclusion they were to come at when they saw that. In fact, Jesus saying, is saying just the opposite of what many today claim in today's evangelical world. Many are saying, oh, wars and rumors of wars is a sign of the end. No, it's not. Read the text. There have been wars and rumors of wars. Nations have been rising up against nation, kingdoms against kingdom, for the past 2,000 years. Right? You all know your history, at least some of it. This is not a new thing. It's been going on. And these tumultuous happenings are going to continue going on and are going to continue to be observed until the time that Jesus does return in glory, whenever that is. So wars and rumors of wars are not signs of the end either. Neither are famines or earthquakes. Verse 7 speaks of them as well. Luke's account adds plagues to this, by the way. So famines, plagues, and earthquakes uh, uh, are tumultuous happenings which are not signs of the end of the age and therefore not signs that Christ is about to return. Famines, plagues, earthquakes have been around again for... They've been around not just for 2,000 years. They've been around since God cursed mankind as punishment for the fall. Right? They're part of the curse. 
been going on for 6,000 years. There's nothing new about famines, about um, plagues, about earthquakes. And they will continue, these events will continue to afflict humanity until heaven and earth are remade by our Lord at his second coming. So disasters such as these, famines, earthquakes, plagues, are not signs of Jesus' imminent return to earth at the end of the age either. David Silverside's um, a uh, Scotch-Irish minister puts it uh, this way in a sermon that he preached on this passage. He said, they are, meaning these uh, famines, plagues, and uh, earthquakes, they are another apparent sign that is no sign. That's what he says. Exact quote. No, occurrences of plagues, famines, and earthquakes following Jesus' ascension would merely mark the beginning, verse 8, of a long period of time, the remainder of the New Testament age, in fact, that will culminate in Christ's return at the end of history. But it's going to characterize the whole age between the first and the second coming. They are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Another thing that is not a sign of the end is persecution of believers by the ungodly. Verse, um, when the apostles, I'll read it in a moment, (coughs) when the apostles themselves are met with hatred on account of their commitment to Christ, and they certainly were, uh, and when they are delivered up, and others like them are delivered up and killed for their proclamation of the gospel in the far-flung corners of the world, they are not to regard such opposition from unbelievers as a sign that the end of the world will be at hand. Again, verses 9 and 10 make this point. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation, and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations on account of my name. And at that time, many will fall away, and will deliver up one another, and hate one another. This is a part and parcel of what is not, uh, that is merely the beginning of birth pangs. So they were not to regard persecution as a sign that the end is near. And neither are we, folks. Neither are we. Now, we don't have any kind of persecution here. But we can read about it. If you get Voice of the Martyrs magazine, uh, if you get uh, World magazine, if you get... um, I'm forgetting something here. Samaritan Ministries, some of you have that, their newsletter. They talk about uh, persecution that's going on in places like India and and uh, uh, Sudan and um, uh, Nigeria and places like that. It's happening all across the globe, and you know what? It may be coming our way. It may be. But the point is, it's not a sign of the end. It's not. We're not to regard it as such. Another thing that is not a sign of the end is spiritual threats uh, to the church's existence that arise from within the church. Whether it be apostasy, actually let me read verses 10 through 12. This is the part I'm talking about. And at that time many will fall away. He's talking about apostasy here by uh, professed Christians. At that time, many will fall away and will deliver up one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise, uh, in other words, from within the church, and will mislead many. And because lawlessness is increased, most people's love, and here he's talking about people who professed 
the faith, I'm convinced, professing Christians will grow cold. These are dangers from within the church to the church's own existence and continuance. So whether it be apostasy by once professing Christians who have deliberately abandoned their allegiance to Christ, or be it the spread of doctrinal heresy in the church, we got a lot of that going on right now in the American church. Health, wealth, prosperity, gospel, um, oneness, uh, uh, oneness um, uh, Christianity, um, um, which isn't Christianity, um, other things, whether it be doctrinal heresy or apostasy, or whether it be an increase within the church of callousness and indifference towards God among professing Christians, cold hearts, due to toleration of sin in their own life, as the passage speaks of lawlessness. We are not to regard those things going on in the church as these assaults on the church's well-being as signs that Jesus is going to return, that his return is just around the corner. Again, heresy in the church, apostasy among the church's members, has been a regular feature of the last 2,000 years. Right? Rather than, and Jesus says in verse 13, rather than expecting an imminent deliverance from these distressing phenomena that he's been talking about by Jesus himself as a result of his coming, rather than you saints looking for me to return imminently and rescue you from these troubling things that I've just been talking about, what you need to do instead of, uh, you know, waiting for me on your rooftop, to return is you need to endure the things if and when they happen to you that I'm talking about. Verse 13. But the one who endures to the end, he shall be saved. We are not to expect Jesus to show up coming in the clouds just because uh, the American government, let's say, outlaws um, Christian preaching or preaching on certain moral subjects, which has already happened in Australia and, I believe, Canada. We're not to think that Jesus is going to, oh, that means, you know, he's, he's here, or he's just about here. No, not a, not a sign of the end. And finally, we are not, as we're going to see next time we're in this uh, chapter, um, in a few weeks, hopefully, uh, in verses 15 through 24, uh, finally, not even the destruction of Jerusalem itself and its temple will be a sign of Jesus' bodily return to the earth at the end of the age. Not even that will signal the end and Jesus' coming. So, in addition to all that I have said up to this point, first century Christians, such as the disciples, were also not to expect Jesus to return imminently because of what Jesus says in verse 14. Look at verse 14. This is my second point, by the way. Uh, Much shorter than the first. So the first point is where we looked at um, um, the tumultuous events, which are not signs of the arrival of the end of the age. Here we're looking at, in verse 14, a task which will be accomplished before the arrival of the end of the age. I'll read it. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world 
for a witness to all the nations, and then the end shall come. Pretty straightforward, isn't it? The gospel is going to be preached throughout the whole world, in the whole world. For a witness to the nations, all of them. This is not just a prediction by Jesus, it is a promise. Note that. It's a promise by the King of Kings, by the Lord of History, that this is going to happen. Now, what is this that's going to happen? What does he mean by the kingdom, the gospel shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to the nations? What, what does he mean exactly? Well, I am convinced, and by the way, this is part of the reason why you haven't gotten, well, we've, I've taken my time getting through getting to Matthew 24, because I had to study this a lot. A lot. Anyway, I am convinced that Jesus is referring here in verse 14 to an explosion of progress in the advancement of the gospel around the entire globe that will result in untold numbers of souls being brought to faith in Christ. Massive awakening, worldwide awakening, is what I think verse 14 is alluding to. A mass spiritual awakening, by the way, lest you think pastor's lost his mind, that was foretold in numerous places, and I mean numerous, I'm going to give you just a handful of them, but there there are many more, Uh, in the Old Testament. Listen, follow me. We're going to go to Psalms and we're going to go to Isaiah. Psalm 22, Messianic prophecy. Uh, one, of the, uh, one of the clearest Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament is found in uh, uh, Psalm 22 as well as uh, Isaiah. The, think, Mark, where's Psalm? There we go. Um, he says this toward the end of Psalm 22, in verse 27. David's speaking, writing about the future. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will worship before thee. Now you could relegate that to the new heavens and the new earth. You could relegate it to that. It's possible, I think. But if you take all these texts together... That I'm going to the additional text that I'm going to read you in the next uh, now, I think you'll see this can't really be a reference to the new heavens and the new earth. So let's go to another one, Psalms 86 verse nine. And again, this is just a representative sampling. I had to pick and choose because I wasn't going to make you read ten passages. Psalm 86 verse nine reads. All nations whom thou hast made shall come and worship before thee, O Lord, and they shall glorify thy name. All the nations shall come and worship. Okay, well, you're not convinced. Let's move on to Isaiah 2. We read, we read this pretty regularly as a call to worship. Listen to what he says. Listen carefully to what he says, starting in verse 2. Now, it will come about that in the last days, 
the mountain of the house of the Lord, Isaiah 2, 2, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. Now, that could be, you can argue that that's a reference to the spiritual Mount Zion, uh, the, the church, uh, or it could actually possibly be, I'm pondering this, uh, a reference to uh, Israel itself. Um, I'm not going to become a dispensationalist, just so you know. But, but I just, but, but post-millennials have some things that, uh, they got some things to say that are actually significant and that uh, uh, there is occasional similarity with some dispensational uh, thought. At any rate, uh, let's go to one more. Isaiah 11, verse 10. A few more chapters ahead. And again, this is, this is just representative sampling. Verse 10 of Isaiah 11. Then it will come about in that day that the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, Jesus in other words, who will stand as a signal for the peoples and his resting place will be glorious. The nations will resort to the root of Jesse. And there are others. I think the Old Testament is speaking about this mass conversion near the end, in the last days, near the end of the ages. I'm convinced of it at this point. But folks, this is a prophecy, a promise, that has not been fulfilled yet. It has not. Today, as we speak, there are scores of people groups which do not yet have the Bible translated into their own language. As of September 2020, Whitcliffe Bible Translators, uh, they are the foremost authorities in this, uh, they indicate that there are uh, 7,360 known languages in the world. 7,360 known languages. But only 1,551 of them have had the New Testament translated into their language. And only 704 of them have had the entire Bible translated into their native tongue. Lots of groups that are, have no scripture at all. No access to the truth. This hasn't happened yet. This promised worldwide mass influx of souls into the kingdom of Christ has to take place before Jesus returns to bring in the end of the age. There's some implications to this, which I'll conclude with. First, what that means is it means that the world as we know it, this troubled, cursed world as we know it, is not going to come to an end anytime soon. That's what, that's what it means. It also means that you and I shouldn't expend mental energy trying to discern whether or not he's about to return to earth because of world events. 
another third implication, and, and the, the preacher I, I uh, cited earlier, David uh, Silversides, uh, made this point eloquently, and I'll show you the verses uh, to make the point. But he said another major implication, and I agree with him, of the fact that the, verse 14 hasn't come close to being fulfilled yet fully. What it means is that it's not true that each generation of Christians is required to believe that Jesus may return in their lifetime. I think many of us have assumed that we have to believe that Jesus can come. I'm one of them, by the way. That assume that I have to believe that Jesus could come tomorrow. That's if if my reading of verse fourteen is correct. And it's not just my reading. Then that's not true. And I'll give you, in closing, an example of somebody who, who else didn't believe it was true. And that's the Apostle Peter. Turn with me over to first, or second Peter. Second Peter, verse, chapter one, verse, verses thirteen and fourteen reads this way. Paul, uh, Peter says, and, uh, so one thirteen, and I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling, his body, is imminent as also our Lord Jesus made clear to me. He knew he was about to die, right? And yet, if you go over to chapter 3, he says, starting in verse 11, and he's talking here to his readers, but it's pretty clear to me that he's also, uh, would include himself in this as well, uh, when we get to it. In verse 13, but he says, Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, you've just been talking about destruction of the, of the world as we know it, the day of the Lord. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? <coughs> Looking for, and he would include himself in that, in that category, uh, <coughs> excuse me, that he himself should be uh, engaging in holy conduct and godliness. Looking for, and hastening the coming of the day of God, on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. Notice, looking for, in verse 12, he's telling his readers, and he would have included himself in this, we are to be looking for the coming of the day of the Lord. What that means, I think, is not necessarily that we have to look for it happening in our lifetime, necessarily, but expectantly looking for and desiring the coming of the Lord. That that should be our desire. Not necessarily that it's going to happen right in our lifetime. And I, So I don't think there's a contradiction, is what I'm trying to tell you, uh, between uh, this interpretation of verse 14 and uh, uh, looking for the coming of the day of the Lord in our, in our age. Folks, the day of the Lord that will come at the end of the age 
will come for many of us sooner than the day of Jesus' bodily return. Probably, maybe all of us are going to die and appear before the judgment seat. That'll be a day of the Lord for us. Now, as I mentioned in Sunday school earlier today, the day of the Lord, what comes with the day of the Lord is judgment and grace. And the objects of his judgment are not the objects of his grace, and the objects of his grace are not the objects of his judgment. The point is, we are all going to stand in judgment. We are all going to come before the the seat of Christ. And we are all going to be judged. And God, Jesus is God the Son, God hates sin. He despises it. And he must, because he's a just God, he must must punish sin. All sin must be punished. It can't be waived. There's no waiving of, of punishment for sin. The only question is, who's going to get the punishment? And for the Christian, Jesus got the punishment on the cross. For the person who is not a Christian, if they pass out of this world, either because of their own death or because Jesus returns in judgment while they're still alive, for the non-Christian, they will receive that punishment for eternity. So if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ, who is 100%, is 100% God and 100% man, and who is the sole mediator between God and men, the sole one who can save you and me from the hell that we all deserve, if you're not trusting in him alone, you will get the hell that you deserve. You deserve. And I deserve. We all deserve it. But you'll get it, unless you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian, flee to Jesus now, in faith, trusting that he alone can save you, but you have to trust him also to be the king of your life. You have to give your life to him and say, Lord, I am your slave. I'm your servant. Save me and be the Lord of my life. And trust him to do that. And you will be saved. And you won't have to be afraid of dying. You won't have to be afraid of this day of the Lord if it comes in your lifetime. But only if you're trusting in Christ alone. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage. Thank you for its teaching. Thank you that, Lord, you will have your day. And that all wrongs will be righted in that day. And we thank you, Lord, that in that day, for those of us who are resting in Christ, it won't be a day of terror. We are most grateful that you showed us our need of Jesus and gave us faith to believe in him as our Savior and as our King. Lord, if there's anybody listening to my voice right now that has not trusted you, Lord Jesus, to save them, has not understood that they deserve hell for eternity and deserve your wrath and hasn't trusted in you, would you please show such a one that they need you and give them the ability, because only you can do that by your Spirit, to actually want you as their Savior and Lord. 
Please save now, Lord, those who need it. And for those of us who are in Christ, would you please fill us with renewed gratitude for your indescribable uh, kindness shown to us, saving us who deserve your wrath and giving us the very opposite of it, eternal bliss, eternal blessing, eternal love from our God. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Stand and turn in your hymnals, the uh, Psalter hymnal, to 342, our hymn of preparation for the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is one of two holy ordinances that Jesus instituted uh, for the church before his ascension into heaven, the other being baptism. And he said that we are to regularly uh, partake of this sacrament. Uh, record of the institution of the Lord's Supper is found in a number of places, uh, uh, four actually in the New Testament, one of which is in Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 26, where we read the following. And while they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of the, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The scriptures teach, we uh, are convinced the scriptures teach that the Lord's Supper communion is um, both a sign and a seal of the covenant of grace. Same is true of baptism. It's a sign and a seal of the covenant of grace, that covenant that God made with Christ Jesus, that God the Father made with Jesus, God the Son, as the second Adam, and in him, in Christ, with all the elect as his seed, as the larger catechism puts it. That is the covenant of grace that Jesus brought into effect by his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, by his crosswork, as it some, as the Puritans referred to it. And it's not merely a sign, a sign, it's not merely a symbol. Uh, a lot of well-meaning Christians believe that it, it's just merely a symbol, that's all it is. Um, it's not merely that, but it is not also a means of saving grace. We don't believe that either. What it is, it is a sign, it is a symbol uh, of what Jesus did for us to bring the covenant into effect and to bring the benefits of the covenant to us. It is that. But it is more than that. Uh, it is also, Scripture teaches, Romans 4.11 and other places, that it is a seal of the covenant of grace. That is, God is saying something when we partake of the Lord's Supper. He is saying, he is guaranteeing afresh the gospel promises that he has made to you who partake. He is saying, if you are resting in Christ... All is well with your soul. That's what he's, in effect, and I don't mean to put words into his mouth, but that's, that's in effect what he is saying, uh, to you. He is, he is 
uh, guaranteeing afresh, confirming the promises that he's already made in his word that you're hoping in, if you're a Christian, with respect to your, regarding your salvation. Uh, he's, he's reaffirming those to you and saying, they're good. They're good promises. And as a sign and as a seal, uh, they are a means, the scripture, uh, the, uh, the sacrament, uh, as well as baptism, um, they are means of sanctifying grace for believers, not of saving grace for an unbeliever. This doesn't save anybody. There's nothing magical in these elements. Rome is wrong about that, uh, as they are about quite a few things. Uh, but, uh, there's nothing magical in this, and there's nothing saving about this. For the unbeliever, you can't get saved by partaking of communion. Uh, nor you should stay away from communion, which I'll get to in a moment. But they are a means for the believer of strengthening his or her soul in their walk with God. To presumably, and we don't, the scriptures don't specify exactly, but to, it does say that you will be blessed if you're a believer. It refers to the cup of blessing, referring to this. You'll be blessed in ways that the Holy Spirit wishes to bless you. Greater assurance of your salvation, perhaps. Greater strengthening you against temptation that you face in the coming week. Uh, Greater, perhaps, understanding of the grace of God than you've had prior to this point in time. Whatever. But it's a blessing that you can receive when you rightly partake of this. Supper. Which Jesus is the, the host of, by the way. He is the he is the host, not me. But you have to rightly partake. And you have to be the right person partaking. So let me get into that. This, uh, this sacrament, this uh, holy ordinance, is not for everyone. If you uh, are not a Christian, or you're not sure you're a Christian, do not partake. Please just do not partake. Let it pass you by. Uh, because, uh, well, you're playing with fire if you do that. You don't want to do that. You need to take this time to reflect on your need of Jesus, your need of uh, trusting in him alone, if you're an unbeliever here. But you also um, don't need to partake of this. So you have to be a Christian. And uh, you need to be, uh, there needs to be evidence that you're a Christian, that evidence being that you're a baptized member of a, in good standing, of an evangelical church. So a baptized member, you've been baptized, and you belong to a church that preaches the gospel, that Jesus is the only hope of sinners, and it's only by putting your trust in him that you're going to be forgiven of your sins and go to heaven. If you don't belong to our church, but belong to that kind of a church, and have been baptized, and you're not under discipline or something like that, um, then you are welcome to partake with us. And you know yourself to be a Christian. But if you're a Christian, you say you're a Christian, and you are... Um, playing games with God, you have some sin that you're indulging in and you're not repenting of, um, you're probably not a Christian. Or you may not. You don't have the right to think you're a Christian, for one thing. Um, you need to take that to heart. But you certainly, if you're playing games with God, must not partake of this. Again, in, in first, first Corinthians, Paul says you're going to be eating and drinking judgment unto yourself if you do that. You need to take time to uh, reflect on the evil that you are engaging in by fighting against God and saying, no, God, you can't have this area of my life. I like this sin, and you can't have it. I mean, you, take, you, you can't take it away. Uh, you need to 
ask God to soften your hard heart and um, and give you a repentant heart. But if you're wrestling with sin, which we all are, but you're fighting against it, then this is absolutely what you need. Come, if that describes you. Let's now pray for the Lord to bless our partaking. Lord, we thank you for this means of grace, of sanctifying grace to us, your people. We ask that as we partake of it, Lord, that you would help us to feed in our hearts upon uh, your body and your blood, Lord Jesus, as you have indicated, uh, by faith, that we would be looking to your body, bodily sacrifice for us as our only hope, and that we would be rejoicing in your atoning work rendered on our behalf as we partake. Give us that faith, please. And we pray that you would take these uh, elements that we are about to receive and set them apart from the common everyday use uh, that we normally use them for under the holy purposes for which we are about to use them now. And would you please bless us as we uh, look to you for that blessing, Lord. And we ask it in your name. Amen. The Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it um, and gave it to his disciples, as I ministry in his name, give this bread to you. And he said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Please uh, wait until we're all served, and then we will uh, partake together, uh, and the same with the, the wine. By the way, there is wine uh, there's grape juice in the middle for those who cannot in good conscience partake of the wine, but we would strongly encourage you to partake of the wine because um, that's what was being used in the upper room when, uh, when the Lord's Supper first took place. The body of Christ was broken for you. Take and eat. In the same manner, he also took the cup, and having given thanks, as we have already done in his name, he gave it to his disciples, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Drink from it, all of you. Again, grape juice is in the middle, but wine around the perimeter. I encourage you to take the wine. Blood of Christ was shed for you. Drink from it, all of you. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you so much for um, 
your indescribable mercy shown to us in Christ. Thank you, Jesus, for your willingness to bear the awful load that our sins deserved and to live that perfect life of law-keeping that we have not lived, nor can we live, um, but that you, because you are both God and man, did live uh, in our place. Thank you that that is our righteousness, that is our confidence in the courtroom of heaven. And we thank you uh, that you love us so, that you would do that for us. Would you please help us to go forth from this place, Lord, and be a blessing to others? Would you please use not only our uh, nonverbal witness, but also our verbal witness to show this lost and dying world uh, what a wonderful salvation they can have um, by looking to you as their, as their hope? And would you please help us to walk in greater obedience this week as a result of our time spent here? And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's close. Receive now God's blessing. Now may the God of peace, who brought it from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.